Section 13 The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Sinner Written by himself by James Hogg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It was about this time that my reverend father preached a sermon, one sentence of which affected me most disagreeably. It was to the purport that every unrepented sin was productive of a new sin with each breath that a man drew. And every one of these new sins added to the catalogue in the same manner. I was utterly confounded at the multitude of my transgressions, for I was sensible that there were great numbers of sins of which I had never been able thoroughly to repent. And these momentary ones, by moderate calculation, had, I saw long ago, amounted to a hundred and fifty thousand in a minute. And I saw no end to the series of repentances to which I had subjected myself. A lifetime was nothing to enable me to accomplish the sum, and then being, for anything, I was certain of in my state of nature, and the grace of repentance withheld from me. What was I to do, or what was to become of me? In the meantime, I went on sinning without measure, but I was still more troubled about the multitude than the magnitude of my transgressions, and the small minute ones puzzled me more than those that were more heinous, as the latter had generally some good effects in the way of punishing wicked men, forward boys, and deceitful women. And I rejoiced, even then in my early youth, at being used as a scourge in the hand of the Lord. Another Jehu, a Cyrus, or a Nebuchadnezzar. On the whole, I remember that I got into great confusion relating to my sins and repentances, and knew neither where to begin nor how to proceed, and often had great fears that I was wholly without Christ and that I would find God a consuming fire to me. I could not help running into new sins continually, but then I was mercifully dealt with, for I was often made to repent of them most heartily, by reason of bodily chastisements received on these delinquencies being discovered. I was particularly prone to lying and I cannot but admire the mercy that has freely forgiven me all these juvenile sins. Now that I know them all to be blotted out, and that I am an accepted person, I may the more freely confess them. The truth is, that one lie always paved the way for another. From hour to hour, from day to day, and from year to year so that I found myself constantly involved in a labyrinth of deceit from which it was impossible to extricate myself. If I knew a person to be a godly one, I could almost have kissed his feet. But 
against the carnal portion of mankind. I set my face continually. I esteemed the true ministers of the gospel, but the prelatic party and the preachers up of good works I abhorred. And to this hour I account them the worst and most heinous of all transgressors. There was only one boy at Mr. Witch's class who kept always the upper hand of me in every part of education. I strove against him from year to year, but it was all in vain, for he was a very wicked boy, and I was convinced he had dealings with the devil. Indeed, it was believed all over the country that his mother was a witch, and I was at length convinced that it was no human ingenuity that beat me with so much ease in the Latin. After, I had often sat up a whole night with my reverend father, studying my lesson in all its bearings. I often read as well and sometimes better than he, but the moment Mr. Wilson began to examine us, my opponent popped up above me. I determined, as I knew him for a wicked person and one of the devil's hand-fasted children, to be revenged on him and to humble him by some means or other. Accordingly, I lost no opportunity of setting the master against him and succeeded several times in getting him severely beaten for faults of which he was innocent. I can hardly describe the joy that it gave to my heart to see a wicked creature suffering, for though he deserved it not for one thing, he richly deserved it for others. This may be by some people accounted a great sin in me, but I deny it, for I did it as a duty, and what a man or boy does for the right will never be put into the sum of his transgressions. This boy, whose name was McGill, was, at all his leisure hours, engaged in drawing profane pictures of beasts, men, women, houses and trees, and in short, of all things that his eye encountered. These profane things the master often smiled at and admired. Therefore, I began privately to try my hand likewise. I had scarcely tried above once to draw the figure of a man, or I conceived that I had hit the very features of Mr. Wilson. They were so particular that they could not be easily mistaken, and I was so tickled and pleased with the droll likeness that I had drawn that I laughed immoderately at it. I tried no other figure but this and I tried it in every situation in which a man and a schoolmaster could be placed. I often wrought for hours together at this likeness, nor was it long before I made myself so much master of the outline that I could have drawn it in any situation whatever, almost offhand. I then took McGill's account book of algebra home with me, and at my leisure, put down a number of gross caricatures of Mr. Wilson here and there, several of them in situations notoriously ludicrous, 
I awaited the discovery of this treasure with great impatience. But the book, chancing to be one that McGill was not using, I saw it might be long enough before I enjoyed the consummation of my grand scheme. Therefore, with all the ingenuity I was master of, I brought it before our Domine's eye. But never shall I forget the rage that gleamed in the tyrant's viz. I was actually terrified to look at him, and trembled at his voice. McGill was called upon, and examined relating to the obnoxious figures. He denied flatly that any of them were of his doing. But the master, inquiring at him whose they were, he could not tell, but affirmed it to be some trick. Mr. Wilson at one time began, as I thought, to hesitate. But the evidence was so strong against McGill that at length his solemn asservations of innocence only proved an aggravation of his crime. There was not one in the school who had ever been known to draw a figure but himself, and on him fell the whole weight of the tyrant's vengeance. It was dreadful, and I was once in hopes that he would not leave life in the culprit. He, however, left the school for several months, refusing to return to be subjected to punishment for the faults of others, and I stood king of the class. Matters were at last made up between McGill's parents and the schoolmaster, but by that time I had got the start of him, and never in my life did I exert myself so much as to keep the mastery. It was in vain. The powers of enchantment prevailed, and I was again turned down with a tear in my eye. I could think of no amends but one, and of being driven to desperation, I put it in practice. I told a lie of him. I came boldly up to the master and told him that McGill had in my hearing cursed him in a most shocking manner and called him vile names. He called McGill and charged him with the crime, and the proud young coxcomb was so stunned at the atrocity of the charge that his face grew as red as crimson, and the words stuck in his throat as he feebly denied it. His guilt was manifest, and he was again flogged most nobly and dismissed the school forever in disgrace as a most incorrigible vagabond. This was a great victory gained, and I rejoiced and exulted exceedingly in it. It had, however, very nigh cost me my life, for not long thereafter I encountered McGill in the fields on which he came up and challenged me for a liar, daring me to fight him. I refused, and said that I looked on him as quite below my notice. But he would not quit me, and finally told me that he should either lick me or I should lick him, as he had no other means of being revenged on such a scoundrel. I tried to intimidate him, but it would not do and I believe I would have given all that I had in the world to be quit of him, 
He at length went so far as first to kick me, and then strike me on the face. And being both older and stronger than he, I thought it scarcely became me to take such insults patiently. I was nevertheless well aware that the devilish powers of his mother would finally prevail, and either the dread of this or the inward consciousness of having wronged him certainly unnerved my arm, for I fought wretchedly and was soon wholly overcome. I was so sore defeated that I kneeled and was going to beg his pardon. But another thought struck me momentarily, and I threw myself on my face and inwardly begged aid from heaven. At the same time, I felt as if assured that my prayer was heard and would be answered. While I was in this humble attitude, the villain kicked me with his foot and cursed me. And I, being newly encouraged, arose and encountered him once more. We had not fought long at this second turn before I saw a man hastening towards us, on which I uttered a shout of joy and laid on valiantly. But my very next look assured me that the man was old John Barnett, whom I had likewise wronged all that was in my power, and between these two wicked persons I expected anything but justice. My arm was again enfeebled, and that of my adversary prevailed. I was knocked down and mauled most grievously, and while the ruffian was kicking and cuffing me at his will and pleasure, up came old John Barnett, breathless with running, and at one blow with his open hand leveled my opponent with the earth. Take ye that, maester, said John to learn ye better breeding. How to wa, man, and ye will fight, fight fair. God suff us, er ye a gentleman's brood, that ye will kick and cuff a lad when he's down. When I heard this kind and unexpected interference, I began once more to value myself on my courage, and springing up, I made at my adversary. But John, without saying a word, bit his lip, and seizing me by the neck, threw me down. McGill begged of him to stand and see fair play, and suffer us to finish the battle, for, added he, he is a liar and a scoundrel, and deserves ten times more than I can give him. I ken he's a that ye say, and mare, young man, quoth John. But am I sure that ye're not so bad, and war? It says nae muckle for ony a ye to be ten like tykes at one another here. John cocked his cudgel and stood between us, threatening to knock the one dead who first offered to lift his hand against the other. But perceiving no disposition in any of us to separate, he drove me home before him like a bullock, and keeping close guard behind me, lest McGill had followed. I felt greatly indebted to John, yet I complained of his interference to my mother, 
and the old officious sinner got no thanks for his pains. As I am writing only from recollection, so I remember of nothing farther in these early days, and the least worthy of being recorded. That I was a great and transcendent sinner, I confess. But still I had hopes of forgiveness, because I never sinned from principle but accident. And then I always tried to repent of these sins by the slump, for individually it was impossible. And though not always successful in my endeavors, I could not help that, the grace of repentance being withheld from me, I regarded myself as in no degree accountable for the failure. Moreover, there were many of the most deadly sins into which I never fell, for I dreaded those mentioned in the Revelations as excluding sins, so that I guarded against them continually. In particular, I brought myself to despise, if not to abhor, the beauty of women, looking on it as the greatest snare to which mankind was subjected. And though young men and maidens, and even old women, my mother among the rest, taxed me with being an unnatural wretch, I gloried in my acquisition, and to this day am thankful for having escaped the most dangerous of all snares. I kept myself also free of the sins of idolatry and misbelief, both of a deadly nature, and upon the whole, I think I had not then broken, that is, absolutely broken, above four out of the Ten Commandments. But for all that, I had more sense than to regard either my good works or my evil deeds, as in the smallest degree influencing the eternal decrees of God concerning me, either with regard to my acceptance or reprobation. I depended entirely on the bounty of free grace, holding all the righteousness of man as filthy rags, and believing in the momentous and magnificent truth that, the more heavenly loaden with transgressions, the more welcome was the believer at the throne of grace. And I have reason to believe that it was this dependence and this belief that at last ensured my acceptance there. I come now to the most important period of my existence, the period that has modeled my character and influenced every action of my life, without which this detail of my actions would have been as a tale that hath been told, a monotonous farrago, an uninteresting harangue, in short, a thing of nothing. Whereas, lo! It must now be a relation of great and terrible actions, done in the might and by the commission of heaven. Amen. Like the sinful king of Israel, I had been walking softly before the Lord for a season. I had been humbled for my transgressions, and as far as I recollect, sorry on account of their numbers and heinousness. My reverend father had been, moreover, examining me every day regarding the state of my soul, and my answers sometimes appeared to give him satisfaction, 
and sometimes not. As for my mother, she would harp on the subject of my faith forever. Yet, though I knew her to be a Christian, I confess that I always despised her motley instructions, nor had I any great regard for her person. If this was a crime in me, I never could help it. I confess it freely, and believe it was a judgment from heaven inflicted on her for some sin of former days, and that I had no power to have acted otherwise towards her than I did. In this frame of mind was I when my reverend father one morning arose from his seat, and meeting me as I entered the room, he embraced me and welcomed me into the community of the just upon earth. I was struck speechless, and could make no answer save by looks of surprise. My mother also came to me, kissed and wept over me, and after showering unnumbered blessings upon my head, she also welcomed me into the society of the just made perfect. Then each of them took me by a hand, and my reverend father explained to me how he had wrestled with God, as the patriarch of old had done, not for a night, but for days and years, and that in bitterness and anguish of spirit on my account, but that he had at last prevailed, and had now gained the long and earnestly desired assurance of my accepted with the Almighty in and through the merits and sufferings of his son. That I was now a justified person, adopted among the number of God's children, my name written in the Lamb's book of life, and that no bypass transgression, nor any future act of my own or of other men, could be instrumental in altering the decree. All the powers of darkness, added he, shall never be able to pluck you again out of your Redeemer's hand. And now, my son, be strong and steadfast in truth. Set your face against sin and sinful men, and resist even to blood, as many of the faithful of this land have done, and your reward shall be double. I am assured of your acceptance by the word and spirit of him who cannot err, and your sanctification and repentance unto life will follow in due course. Rejoice and be thankful, for you are plucked as a brand out of the burning, and now your redemption is sealed and sure. I wept for joy to be thus assured of my freedom from all sin and of the impossibility of my ever again falling away from my new state. I bounded away into the fields and the woods to pour out my spirit in prayer before the Almighty for His kindness to me. My whole frame seemed to be renewed. Every nerve was buoyant with new life. I felt as if I could have flown in the air or leapt over the tops of the trees. An exaltation of spirit lifted me, as it were, far above the earth, and the sinful creatures crawling on its surface. And I deemed myself as an eagle among the children of men, soaring on high, 
and looking down with pity and contempt on the groveling creatures below. End of section 13